Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, we are a podcast for movement and exercise professionals, as well as amateur aficionados. Our ethos is movement, part of what makes your life complete. Think about movement as more than just an activity, it's a lifestyle. I'm excited to have part two of the interview today with Chandler Walker. We heard him two weeks ago talking about his experiences as a high school athlete, and this, whereas he enjoyed playing football, he recognized that there was more than that went to college with the anticipation of becoming a doctor and with some rotations and observations realized that maybe this wasn't the path that he wanted to fall and finished up talking a little bit about the goals for the people that he works with. He works with high-level athletes. He works with kids, which I think is especially important. And then the unfortunately growing population of people who hurt due to lifestyle choices or lifestyles. So we're back at part two to talk a little bit more with Chandler. Chandler, thanks for taking time for a second interview with Moving to Live. Yeah, thanks for having me come back on. I'm, I'm pumped about part two, more pumped than part one, probably because I've already done it once. So let's do this and take over the world. You told us uh, last time you work with high-level athletes, you work with kids, you work with people who are a little bit older than kids and have some pain. I want to spend a little time, if you don't mind, talking about your work with kids because if you read anything in the news, especially with the uh, recent information uh, coming out about high-level basketball players and the number of injuries that you see with them, I think it's especially important to address that. So I guess the first question I want to ask about this is, how did you decide when you opened Stone Age Fuel as a bricks and mortar business that, hey, you know, I want to include kids as part of the groups of people that I work with? Because I know there's a lot of facilities and a lot of people it's like, I just want to work with high level athletes or I just want to work with people who don't move well. 
Yeah. So when we opened, I had a, we had the fitness for life facility and the, and the program to get people fit for life. But then at the same time, we had a weightlifting program that was a, another program on the other side. And in the beginning, we just called it youth weightlifting. And after a while though, I took my little sister, who was my first guinea pig, played and worked with her, got her in a position to where she was healthy and able to play sport and do well because my youngest sister is a high level cheerleader and she would always walk in and she would have ankle problems, knee problems, hip problems, back problems. Uh, she was just broken everywhere. So we w- brought her in and, and started working with her, started building her strength up, started building strength in the position she needed to perform well in those. And I realized that we can have a, a, perfra- a, a high impact, a highly impactful position with these kids and we can put ourselves in a position to where we can make them hurt less and make their sports more enjoyable for them when they get into it. And so then I took her and she brought in her friends and then another friend. And all of a sudden now we had like 30 cheerleaders we were working on. So I could probably have been like a cheerleading rehab specialist at the same time. Uh, But what we did was we added the parameter to the program. So now it's youth weightlifting and sports performance because we know that we can get these kids in a position to where they move well in often restricted positions in sport. So that way they don't have problems down the road. And what's the requirement for a kid to come? Do they have to play a sport or do they just want to ha- want to come to the facility? So we let kids from both walks of life come in. I have some kids who've been lifting with us for just four years because they love it. It's the an identity they've developed. They really enjoy coming in. They have no intention of competing. They play no sports, but they move well. They're happy and they're healthy. And so I'm happy with that. They stay in the gym. They're, I call them the original gangsters of the gym. They're just, they're there. They're taken over. They're like Snoop Dogg, except without all the drugs and junk. <laughs> but, uh, and then on the other side, we bring in the athletes. So the athletes come in and say, Hey, I play baseball or I'm a cheerleader or I'm chronically injured because I play the sport or I want to get better. I don't feel like I, I'm getting where I want to be. And I heard you guys do this. And so we bring those people in. The beginning of that is an initial conversation. It's, do you want this or are you pretending you want it? Because if you're pretending you want it, it's not, we're not, neither of us are going to get anywhere. We, I need to make sure that you're as committed to this as we are and your parents are as committed to this as you are. Because those dynamics have to be together and have to be capable of working together. Often you find the parents force the kids in or the kids come in and the parents have no idea. So you need all those subsets and parameters going and organized before you can create a high-level program for high-level kids. I'm curious. I had the opportunity about a year ago to talk to Menachem Brody about how he breaks up with an athlete when it just isn't working out. And I think it's a be an interesting con- conversation if, you, if you're willing. How do you tell a child or a kid and their parents that, hey, this isn't the right opportunity? Because I think you hit on a great point. You want to make sure the kids are coming because they want to come and not because mom and dad are saying, hey, if you do this, it'll help you get on the football team and you'll get a scholarship. So I know that sometimes kids and parents can do really good job of lip service and do a really good selling job to you. Have you ever had the experience where down the line, it's like, wow, this is not exactly what they said. And this clearly, this kid should not be here because mom and dad are pushing them. They're not here because they want to be here. Yeah. And for me, that's a conversation that has to happen one-on-one with the parent and the child and you together in an empathetic way. So you can't approach it saying, no, we're good. They're not good enough, or they don't get along with anybody or there's problems. It's 
it just doesn't seem like we have a mutual fit. Johnny doesn't seem like he's super pumped, super interested in this. And to me, it feels like he needs to be put in a position to where he can have a better environment or maybe the sport isn't something he should be involved in because it's also my responsibility to make sure I'm the the third piece of that child. Because when you look at the mentorship timeline in a, in a, a kid's life, there's the parents, there's the teachers, and there's the coaches they interact with. And being that coach, you're put in a position to where you're not only there to get the kid better, but you're there to make better decisions for the child if they don't have good decisions being made for them. And it's not always the fault of the parents. And sometimes we get so far in the weeds trying to get little Johnny a scholarship, we don't realize little Johnny hates everything he's doing. And so then it's our opportunity to sit down together and talk about how we can create a better opportunity or where a better opportunity would be. Maybe little Johnny should go do some martial arts or something. Maybe she just take a break for six months. And usually when we do that, we come to a mutual agreement and everybody's happy and, and people don't often get upset because of the way we approach it from a mentorship idea versus it's just a bad fit idea. I know that's never an easy conversation. Do you find it's easier now after you've been doing it for a few years and you have to do it less because you're better at identifying it in the initial interviews? I do think we're better at identifying it so it doesn't happen as often. But if I have to have that conversation with a child and a parent, it's, it never gets easier. It's, it's a tough conversation. I think about it for weeks before we do it. And I think about it for weeks afterward. And I, I'll call them three months down the road and see how they're doing. Because it's, it's, I'm creating an impactful change in that kid's life. And I need to make sure the decisions I make are the best decisions for them and their parents. And if I make a decision because I tell little Johnny he can't be in here and he's worse down the road and I call in and check in, then maybe at that point he realized he did like it and it's time to bring him back in. And so I think it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult position to be in. And it's incredibly difficult for a mentor to have to tell someone that they're not a good fit for your facility, especially if they've been in there for a certain length of time because you develop a sort of relationship with these people. And I'm curious, what's the youngest uh, group of individuals that you work with with kids? Oh, man. My youngest kid that I worked with was... I've had some six-year-olds come in who are, are gymnasts, high-level gymnasts already. and They're already getting beat up and, and moving around and flipping and all that stuff. And so when you get them that young, it's really about... It, it can't be as structured as their sport if they're already in a sport because they're, they're already so specialized. They're already in a position to where they might be starting to hate it. So you need to create an encouraging and a high impact environment to where they're going to be happy. And you also need to make sure you're not doubling up on what their time is that they're training in their sport. So if someone's that young training, they're already doing two or three hours in the gym. You need to make sure that your session is 30 to 45 minutes. Get them in, get them out get them what they need and make sure they have a good time. And the younger ones, it's, it's really, you have to have the parents involved at the same time. They have to be there, but they can't be parents who are coaching. They just have to be there who are available watching and encouraging. And the other two questions with working with kids that I know what's a popular topic of conversation. Some people think it needs to be addressed. Other people kind of want to put their heads in the silo is specializing and what age it should be. I've had the good fortune to interview a variety of people working with youth athletes, and all of them agree that at some point, an athlete to achieve their level has to specialize, but the danger is starting too early, both from a musculoskeletal and a psychological, so they don't burn out. I'm thinking of a lot of post-college swimmers that I know that never set foot in the pool because they hate the pool. They have the black line fever. So my question to you is from your experience and your education, what's the age where you think uh, specialization to, could occur? And you mentioned gymnastics. And I know a lot of times with female gymnastics, they hit 16 or 17 and a lot of them have peaked. 
Yeah. And they burn out. My significant other did gymnastics for 10 years and, and she burned out when she was 16 or 17 and hated everything about the sport because she was doing three hours of training in the morning, three hours of training in the evening, skipping classes in the middle of the day in order to be able to do the sport at the high level. And for me, I think if you specialize too early and the model of youth specialization from uh, like six years old, even three years old comes from the countries like China and, and the grinder systems that build Olympians, but also grind out 7,000 other kids on the streets who don't make it to that high level. And so when I look at what we're doing in modern society and the structure we need to organize kids in it is they need to have a base level of strength and you have a base level of the ability to move well and they need to have a, a base level of, you, you can, at the lack of a better word, general physical preparedness. Even though CrossFit took over that term, I'm not saying CrossFit should be the specialization. They just need to have that general physical preparedness in order to be prepared to do their sport down the road. And I think the real, uh, and the other piece that I think is a big problem with kids is, is the mental aspect and the anguish it puts on them specializing them early. Uh, kids who are, I've had nine-year-old kids who come in the gym and break down crying because they can't handle their sport. The kid's nine. And so I just don't think they have the level of maturity that's going to allow them to specialize that young. And so I think your specialization, I don't think it can start anywhere younger than anywhere from 12 to 13. I think you're starting to get a little more mature. You can have a good strength base and a good athletic base, and then you can start specializing and you're going to have a lot better experience. And hopefully at that point, you've tried 17 different sports. So when you do start specializing, you're a lot better off. And then when we look at kids getting into college now, it's the kids who had three, four, five, six sports in that GPP background that do excel and do do really well and do go to the high level and then don't hate it at the end and don't have mental anguish and problems and all these issues associated with specializing too early. I think that's some great info that kind of leads to a follow-up question in that I know having been experienced with youth uh, soccer, sometimes these soccer coaches want the athletes to specialize and, you know, seven, eight, nine, and they have, you know, seven-year-old select or travel soccer teams, which I think is ridiculous. So my question is kind of a two-parter. First of all, how do you address that with the parents? Because it's pretty clear that your goal is long-term health and wellness of the child. How do you address it with the parents who comes in with little Johnny or little Janie who says, hey, you know, she's eight years old, she's on the travel select team, but we've got this eight-week block right here where she can come and work with you. Do you attempt to explain to them why specialization isn't the best thing if her goal is to play in college or, you know, ultimately play professionally or maybe even the World Cup? Yeah. So what I do is I, I'll, if the parents come in and say, Hey, we got eight weeks, we need to get this kid back up to ready to go to play soccer for the next year and a half. And the kid's seven. And I have to sit down with the parents and tell them, look, we're not going to be able to accomplish. I mean, we might get you some short term gains in eight weeks, but when that kid goes back to sport, we're going to start seeing ACL problems, MCL, we're going to start seeing knees blown out. We're going to, they're going to start hating it, not wanting to go to practice. They're going to cry before they come in. And we're going to have to deal with these, these issues and these problems associated with this. So we'll sit down with the parents and say, this is what our long-term athletic development program looks like. This is where we like to get kids going. This is the amount of time we'll put in, into your child. And this is the amount of time they should be putting into a sport at this age. And if it's, if it's a parent who says, nope, they need to train right now, every day, as hard as they can, because that's how I want it to happen. And that's where we have the, well, this isn't going to be a good fit conversation. We can't help you. Here's some people who might be able to put you in a better position, but 
for us and for this to work for our program in, in terms of long-term athletic development, I don't think this is going to be the best fit for your child. And it's a tough conversation, but you end up with the right people involved in your programs at the right times just from having these conversations. And in the end, the parents call you and they respect you for it anyway, because they, they go through it the hard way and they have to come back and say, you know what? You were right. Uh, I got to get Johnny fixed now. He's broken. He hates his life and, and we're having some serious problems. And you were the only one who would tell me that that was going to be an issue. I'm curious with that initial visit, how often do you have to turn people away because they think that uh, your long-term plan isn't the best way? And anymore, we have a bit of a reputation developed around building kids the way we do. And, and so people are fairly well-informed when they walk in. I mean, they listen to our podcast, they get emails, and we have videos that talk about our philosophies and our programs and, and a lot of that stuff. And so I would say only uh, maybe 20% of the time we have a conversation like that. And usually what happens is if that conversation starts, the parents are a lot more open to adjust and modify and switch what they're doing or at least work with us to make it better. Uh, so I find that we're getting people who are more in agreement with us now versus 2013 where everything was a battle. I'm also curious because everything you say makes sense, but I know anybody who works as a strength and conditioning coach or conditioning coach always has to battle with the sport coach who in their own mind, oftentimes that I'm stereotyping, but they're the expert about everything. Do Absolutely. You do you find with your model that there are certain coaches or that you know when the athlete comes to you and the parents are all buying in, that there's, you know there's going to be blowback from the sport coach because the way that you're looking at the athletic development is different from the way that the sport coach is looking? I do because I think that a lot of the time the sport coach is grown from almost a good old boys mentality. This is how they did it with me. This is how I'm going to do it with the kids. And if and I, I, I always know at the beginning, who's your coach? And I'll look up the coach or I'll call the coach and get a conversation. I'm not looking to get in a fight or something. I'm, I'm asking them questions. I'm a detective at that point. How many points of contention are we going to create in this relationship? And how am I going to articulate my way around it? And, and so that's usually how we deal with it. We come in and, and Johnny's a, a wrestler and coach is having him train seven days a week, four hours a day. So then we have to have the conversation. Look, I think you should cut back your wrestling two or three days. And we should, if you want to add in this program, because it's, it's not going to make sense to work together. And if coach doesn't buy into this and it creates a point of contention, then you have a choice to make. It's you're going to stick with this program or we'll help you find a better program for you with a coach who is more oriented towards long-term athletic development versus a good old boys grinder system that works in countries where they start juicing young, but it doesn't work when the United States and the developed world where we don't have the opportunity to do those things or, or when there's no glory around the sport at the highest level, you look at gymnastics, kids born at 16, what do they get out of it? Nothing, just mental anguish and pain. I want to switch gears a little bit. I think that probably there are literally a hundred or multi-hundred podcasts out there talking about how people work with elite athletes. And whereas that's interesting, I think our time's better spent talking about that third population you work with, uh, the herders, for lack of a better term, because of their lifestyle choices or because they're aging, they're, they're hurting. Talk about how you decided to bring that group as part of the clientele that you wanted to work with in your gym. Yeah, so that group was a, a group that was that's close to my heart. As I was going through school in biochem, I realized that I really didn't care about like plant physiology or comparative animal stuff. I cared about what was going on in the gut. Immun immunology was one of my favorite courses. When I took the original, my first biochem, it was like 40106 or 601 or something like that. 
it, it was the coolest course I ever took in my life. I hated organic chemistry. I didn't really like chemistry that much, but I loved the idea of the biochemical models and the parameters around the gut and the way the gut moves and operates. And so I found that when people have these chronic issues, it's associated with their gut health and their gut health really dictates the way they're going to look, feel and perform in terms of how they grow and how they age and what happens as they age. And especially when they come off of problems like cancer and a lot of those issues. And, and so I found that being able to understand the biochemical pathways and the mechanisms behind what goes on in people's bodies when they consume bad stuff or they consume whatever they consume throughout their life and create these lifestyle issues was, it was like, I was like the doctor house of health and fitness. People came in and they said, oh man, my stomach hurts. I have acne and I have 67 other things wrong with me. Nobody can figure it out. What can you do? And I would be like, okay, let's do this. And I put my top hat on and monocle and we'd have a great time. And, and so that was really what tickled my fancy, figuring out what's wrong with people when no one knows what's wrong with people. And, and it turned into this, we did a talk we called Fluff to Tough. And we talked about how your gut gets destroyed and how you can heal your gut and how autoimmune diseases are often associated with a, a problem in the gut or a leaky gut that creates these issues. How much do you think this is also related to lifestyle and always being on the go, 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 never stopping to, for lack of a better term, smell the flowers? Yeah, I think stress is a huge parameter behind it because once someone gets heavily stressed, uh, their biochemical composition changes. You'll have different gut bacteria based on how stressed you are and how not stressed you are. With stress comes lack of sleep. With lack of sleep, lack of sleep comes more stress. With that becomes a person who is just high can't stop. They're on, always on the go. They wait, lay there and their eyes are wide open. And so a lot of these turn into these chronic lifestyle associated diseases. Like I hurt everywhere, but I don't know why. Or I can't sleep, but I don't know why. I can't stop moving, but I don't know why. I'm constantly twitching and adjusting and, and my body just won't work the way I want it to work. And so I think stress is one of the big pinnacles and one of the big pillars that creates these issues with people. I think it's interesting to hear that. I know my background is in athletic training and having worked in orthopedic clinics. And one of the big problems that you often see with many people, and you probably see it also, is people who have chronic low back pain. And some of it obviously is due to the way they move, but there's starting to be changes in the pain model that they look at. And they find that a lot of times, times of stress are when the back pain flares up. Absolutely. So by, so by addressing what the stress is or even recognizing it, and I sound kind of like a quack, but I've got a couple of herniated discs in my back. And about six months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and really couldn't sleep. And I'm going, oh, crap, my back is out again. And then I started thinking, I don't know what it was. I have my best thoughts running with my dogs. And also when I wake up at like three o'clock in the morning, and I realized, well, I've got A, B, and C that are really stressing. I'll bet that's why my back hurts because I haven't done anything. And it sounds crazy, but literally within eight or 10 breaths, I could almost feel the pain going away. And I woke up the next morning and it's like, okay, my back's a little sore, but so what? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because what you see is with stress comes inflammation, with inflammation comes pain. And if we have chronic inflammation, wherever we have problems, it's going to flare up, it's going to create problems. And as you reduce the stress associated in your life, you reduce the amount of inflammation that's associated with what is going on in your body. And then as a result, you reduce pain. And you look at eight years ago, this would have been quackery. They would have screamed at us. Same thing of talking about like cholesterol nowadays. Uh, these are the problems that we're seeing that are you see that the body has a synergistic composition. Everything leads into everything. And that's why the root cause approach is such a practical approach to this. It's not just my back hurts. It's what is going on in your life? Why do, why, why do you think your back hurts? What kind of stressors do you have? What does your sleep look like? What are you eating? And are you actually moving inactive? I know a 
couple of body workers. And one of the things they say is occasionally they'll get a client who they ask those questions because it really is the whole body model. And the person will say, I don't want to talk about that. I'm just here for you to work on my body as a massage therapist or as a rolfer. When they come into you, because in essence, and this is not to dumb it down, but you know, somebody looks at something like Stone Age Fuel, they say, okay, it's a fitness facility. And that's not a bad thing. You're, you do things a little bit differently than other places, which is kind of one of the reasons Moving to Live wanted to interview you. But they come into you and they say, man, you know, it's, uh, it's January 1st because in about two months, you'll probably have a big influx of people who are interested in you because it's the new year. And you sit down with them in that intro interview and you start asking these questions. Do you ever have blowback where they say, I don't want to talk about that. Just give me a workout program. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, we tend to organize our entry programs. And I would say this puts us in a different parameter than everyone else. And especially like the bikini body boot camps and stuff. Uh, When we bring people in, they're in a sort of therapy room. So there's a couch and there's a flower on the table and we sit to the opposite side of them, not right right across from them, but on the other side of them. And and we tell them, hey, we're going to come in. You're going to do a one-on-one session with us. We're not going to charge you for this session. I'm going to ask you a bunch of different questions about where you're at, what you're doing and how you're performing and feeling. And then we're going to make a mutual decision as to whether or not working with us is going to be a good fit for you. And usually this conversation happens on the phone. If we get, yes, cool, that sounds great. I really want something like that. Or no, I just want to work out and I just want to flop around for a minute. Uh, if we get the flop around answer, then it's, well, you know what? We're, we're probably not the best fit. Let me give you a couple of places where you can just jump in and get, and get worked on. But when you come in here with us, it's really a whole health, health approach. We're going to make sure that we manage your health and wellness long term. And we're really going to create a position to where we're the middle ground between your physician and you. I think uh, Eric Malzone had a good comment when I was talking to him. He said, so many facilities are worrying about if they're a performance aspect uh, facility, how many people qualify for something, or if they're, you know, if it was weightlifting, how much are their lifters lifting, whereas they should be concentrating on uh, client retention. Are the clients satisfied with what they're getting? And are you happy with what you're getting? And it sounds like you either by choice or accidentally have fallen into that model of are the clients happy with what they're getting? Are we retaining them? And am I happy with what I'm doing? Yeah, absolutely. Our whole model is based on bringing the right people in and retaining those people for as long as possible because we've helped them in so many different ways. And it's really the upfront is we're going to do, you're going to come in for the one-on-one. We're going to talk. We're going to do three sessions to assess what you're, what's going on in your life and whether or not we can help you and how many sessions you're going to need to fix yourself at the end of the three session. Then we go into a a fundamentals program that's anywhere from seven to 18 personal training sessions to where we work with you on fixing your movement problems, getting a base level of health and wellness, and making sure your nutrition, your eating is dialed and on point. And at the same time, we're building a relationship with you and a dynamic to where you trust us and you put us on the same level as a healthcare provider. Then when we finish with that, we feel like you're structured well, you're in a good position and a good place, we'll transition you and let you go into some group classes because we find that if we keep them in PT forever, it gets boring and people don't want to do that. So we move them into small group training and they're allowed to do the same thing. They're allowed to move well. They're allowed to move in a place to where nobody gets hurt and everybody understands good movement patterns. And, and it puts them in a, in a great place. And at the same time in the group sessions, they meet with their coach once every six weeks or so to make sure everything's going well, to check in, to check on diet, and to make sure they're moving in the right direction. This is a atypical model compared to what a big box gym would do. 
And it sounds like unless you're continually training people as employees, you're kind of self-limiting, not in a bad way, but the size of what your facility is going to be. Because if you're going to meet with your uh, clients or customers every six weeks, that takes time. So is this a conscious choice to make it uh, smaller than typical places? Or is the plan eventually to figure out a way to train more people and make the facility larger? Yeah, the model is designed to keep them, we want the model to be a high-end training environment and a high-end solution that's equivalent to the healthcare model and allow probably arguably makes more of an effect than the healthcare model currently. And so the idea is keep it small, charge a premium for everything that we do at a level to where it weeds out the people who don't want to be part of that and at a level to allows the facility to be profitable, the coaches to be paid well and us to grow in the right ways. So we can grow with a small group of people and grow in a small boutique style training facility versus trying to do the big box thing where we just stack as many human bodies in the facility as possible. And we get to the point to where if people don't show up for, if we don't hear from someone for two weeks, the coach will call them, send them a text message. Hey, what's going on? You haven't been in here. We're not in this facility to pay and not show up. You're in this facility to get results, to train and to get better and to improve your life. Is that so what we're looking at? I'm curious with that model, have you found that you've started to get referrals from the medical community, from the doctors that are more forward thinking and recognizing the importance of movement? Yeah, we have physiotherapists that work out with us that refer over. We have uh, physicians who understand what we do in terms of gut health. When our clients do really well and they go to the doctor and their cholesterol drops 30 or 40 points, they tell their doctor and then we manage to figure out who their doctor is. They'll tell us, we'll call them and create a relationship with them. When people are coming off of physical therapy, we'll go in and sit on their sessions with them and allow them to transfer over to us really well. So it gives them something after the fact. And so it's created a pretty neat community to where now we have the ability to speak talk, and talk and work with the medical community in a way to where they respect us and trust what we're doing. I've always said, if you're going to do something, do it different or better than other people are doing it. And it sounds like you're doing this. And I know you're speaking after my heart as far as making personal training and fitness at the same level of the medical community. I think that's the, the wave of the future. And it's going to require people to recognize that you can't cookie cutter and give the same program for everybody. Absolutely. And people are different. They move different. If you put, try to put people into silos and give a, a training plan for everybody, you're ultimately going to help nobody. So you really need to understand that you're working with humans who are all different. Nobody's alike. Everybody's going to have different quirks. And it's your responsibility to develop and understand and design a program that's going to be applicable to that individual person, not everybody. I think you'd agree with your biochemistry and biology background. There are some basic principles of physiology, but everybody is an N of one. So everybody's slightly different. Absolutely. And, and then when you look deeper in the gut, the, my gut bacterial composition is going to be much different than someone sitting next to me. And someone who maybe is obese is going to have a significantly different composition than someone who's skinny or someone with an autoimmune problem. And and so when we dive really deep into the, the biochemical parameters of how people actually work and function is it, you're basically, you are what your gut bacteria are. And if you don't have a synergistic environment or an environment that encourages to grow the right bacteria or to put them in the right place, you're going to put yourself in a big problem. And if you try to prescribe someone a, a eating program and you don't understand that, you're putting them into a big problem or they're not going to get results and they're going to wonder what's going on. We've been talking with Chandler Walker, Stone Age Fuel, and Chan's Logic. We're going to have extensive show notes. 
I think this is one of the interviews that probably could go on and on, but one of the goals of moving to live is to make it short enough so you can listen to it on your commute or while you're preparing a dinner. Chandler, I want to thank you for taking time both two weeks ago and this week for talking to Moving to Live about what you do and the way that you're emphasizing intelligent movement to be a lifestyle and not just an activity. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing me on. The more we can talk about this and the more we can spread the word and create better movers and better environments and create a more holistic solution around what we do, the better. So I'm happy to talk and happy to help out. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.